and welcome to the Connect the Dots podcast. My name is Heather and I am your host. For those that aren't watching online or for those that are visually impaired, I am a white woman with short strawberry blonde hair. Today I have on a clear frame glasses, a black shirt and suit jacket, and kind of a bright red lipstick. Um, the subject of our podcast today had a similar look. So I'm uh, taking a cue from uh, Savvy. If you don't know who Savvy is, <laughs> Savvy writes books. Uh, she does YouTube videos and such, but uh, sometimes she dresses as the people that she talks about. And I thought, well, that'd be fun to do today. Um, other than that, I am sitting in front of a dark teal wall that has a line and dot pattern in white. I also have a variety of paintings on that wall as well. I am very glad that you have joined me today. This is episode six of season three, and we are back to the top of the rotation in our topics. So today it's a deep thoughts episode, and I really did some research and deep thinking on this subject. I do want to say there is one instance of explicit language um, when I read a quote here in just a few minutes. Um, there is also the mention of sexual trauma and self-harm in this episode. If you are uncomfortable with either of these things or any of these things, I would recommend that you might skip this episode and come back next week. Uh, but I will give you a warning before the latter two so that you can go ahead and skip ahead and continue to listen and you won't miss out on on the whole story. It's just a, a couple parts of the story. So, uh, But today, if you have not guessed, uh, we are going to talk about Elizabeth Holmes. And we're going to address if Elizabeth Holmes has set the, set the clock back for women entrepreneurs. If you don't know who Elizabeth Holmes is, I'll start with some background. She was the founder and CEO of Theranos, which was... I guess the best way to describe it is a medical tech company. Their mission was to eliminate the need for intravenous blood draws by running all necessary blood tests with blood from a simple finger prick. She had two devices, the Edison and the Minilab. She dropped out of Stanford at 19 to start this company. She ended up raising $945 million over the course of time that the company was active and she lied. A lot. Uh, she has recently been convicted of four counts of fraud. Um, her sentencing will take place later this year. Um, so that's kind of the simple version to get us started in this conversation. And I'm going to fill in some more gaps as we go. I had watched the um, documentary. It was called The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, uh, which was a documentary on HBO that came out in 2019. I'd seen that previously, but didn't reconnect with this story until the Dropout docuseries came on Hulu earlier this year. And it's really a quote from that series that made me go, huh. I think I need to think a little bit more about this, read a little bit more about this. This has my wheels turning. I need to, I need to kind of process kind of what's happening here. Um, so I do want to give the disclaimer that based on all of the research I did, this probably wasn't an actual conversation that happened, but, um, but this exchange from the docu-series really did. It's, it's the one that started making me think about this topic. So in the docu-series, 
um, called The Dropout on Hulu. In episode six, uh, Lori Metcalf, uh, who, for me, the one character I always see her as is Jackie, Aunt Jackie from Roseanne. Uh, if you don't know who Lori Metcalf is, maybe that rings a bell. She's played in a ton of other stuff, but anyways. But Lori Metcalf plays Dr. Phyllis Gardner. And she is having a conversation with Richard Fuse uh, in this scene. And Richard Fuse is played by William H. Macy. In this scene, they had both just left a session where Elizabeth was speaking. And she had spoken about imposter syndrome. And she even mentioned that one of the female professors at Stanford had tried to discourage her from her dream. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a, a little bit more in just a minute. But... But here's the conversation. And so again, if, if language offends you, this is the section where there will be uh, one explicit word. Um, so here's the conversation, right? So let me set the scene. They're sitting on a park bench. They've just gotten out of this uh, talk where they've seen Elizabeth speak. And Phyllis goes, you know how many times I've been told you can't do it? The sexism I faced has been so naked and ugly, it's just taken my breath away. But she thinks I didn't support her idea because she had it easier than me. Because I'm what? Because I'm jealous of her? Fuse's character. Are you? Gardner. Fuck no! I'm mad! I've supported women my whole career. And how many chances are women going to get to do what she's doing? To be the CEO of a major startup? She screws this up and we all look bad. That's the ugly truth and that is unforgivable. Insane. <laughs> I obviously didn't go to acting school, which is fine. Uh, but you get the gist, right? This is the scene that, that got me thinking up, right? Because if she screws this up, we all look bad. And this is true. And when I think about what has transpired from Elizabeth's story, she went from being the woman at the top for us to root for, right? A self-made millionaire on Fortune's, you know, top list, a role model for young women that wanted to get into engineering and chemistry, to being convicted of fraud and lying to everyone about what she and her company had done. And I know that there are stories of men falling from the pedestal that we have put them on. But those stories typically do not hurt the men that come after them. Like it does with the women who will come after Elizabeth. But how did Elizabeth get here? How did she end up committing this fraud? Let's go back to the beginning of her story. I want to talk about some pieces uh, and, and talk through how we, women and men, can learn from her mistakes. Again, so the question of the day, right, is did Elizabeth Holmes set the clock back for female entrepreneurs? So Elizabeth entered Stanford University in the fall of 20, of 2020, oh, almost said 2022, no, in the fall of 2002, she was a very intelligent, bright blue-eyed, blondish colored hair, 18-year-old. She had spent the time in the summer attending a Mandarin program um, that she was actually given an exception for uh, because she had impressed the panel because she, she knew how to speak Mandarin. Uh, she's, very, she's fluent in Chinese. So um, in this program, this is where she first met Sunny Balwani, who was 19 years older than her. Um, in this first year, um, and we'll get back to Sunny later in the story, um, in her first year at Stanford, 
she came up with the idea for a patch that would help diagnose different things and give antibiotics to the patient. And she met with Dr. Phyllis Gardner to discuss this idea because Dr. Gardner is a professor of medicine at Stanford. She's actually currently still teaching there. Um, But Dr. Gardner explained to Elizabeth that the idea that she had was not possible based on current science. Again, this is 2002. Um, In several of the documentaries uh, that Dr. Gardner appears in, she explains that she told Elizabeth in order to administer antibiotics effectively through the skin, um, there's really not an ideal way. Like the skin is not a good way to, it's too big of a barrier for the antibiotics to get through. And this is the reason why that antibiotics are typically administered through an IV directly into the bloodstream or through a pill that you take. Um, She wasn't trying to shut down what Elizabeth was wanting to do, but she was trying to get her to understand the basic physics of how things work, basic chemistry, uh, you know, basis, you know, basic, um, you know, barrier science of how you know, you can't, for antibiotics to be effective, you know, a a patch is really not the ideal thing. At least in 2002, that wasn't, wasn't something that, like, science wasn't there yet. Um, But Elizabeth wouldn't give up on her idea. So she went to a few other professors, and she did find one that would support her and her ideas. This ends up, one of those professors ends up actually leaving his tenured teacher position to go help Elizabeth start uh, to be one of the first people like at the company. So, you know, that she did find uh, uh, some supporters. Um, just a warning, this next short section does cover one of the sensitive topics I mentioned about at the start of the episode. So if you want to skip ahead like 30 seconds, do that now. I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to do that while I, I take a sip of water. Okay, so during her short time at Stanford, uh, Elizabeth Holmes does say that she was raped. And in January of 2022, NPR did obtain a copy of a partial police report from the evening of October 5th, 2003, in which Holmes called the police and allegedly she was sexually assaulted at a fraternity house at Stanford between 1 and 3 a.m. that morning. The police reported uh, the police report supported the claims that Holmes made during her recent trial in which she said, I was questioning how I was going to be able to process that rape experience and what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided that I was going to build a life by building a company. So after this incident happens and in the docuseries, the dropout, they, they kind of portray this as well, but after the incident, she finds comfort in her relationship with Sonny. So she had kept up with Sonny, you know, since they had met um, at the, in the Mandarin program, you know, kept up on and off. Um, he had been married at the time. He had since divorced. And so shortly after, um, at some point, they begin dating. So for those that skipped ahead, welcome back. <laughs> um, At the end of her freshman year, Holmes worked at a laboratory in the uh, Genome Institute of Singapore and tested for several acute respiratory syndrome um, coronavirus, so SARS, right? Because this was around the time of SARS. Uh, So she was testing that through the collection of blood samples with syringes. Um, 
She filed her first patent application on a wearable drug delivery patch in 2003. And then in March 2004, she dropped out of Stanford School of Engineering. She then used her tuition money as seed funding for a consumer healthcare technology company. So her parents, she went to her parents and said, dropping out of school, I want to start this business. Can I have my tuition money to do so? And they said, yes, here's your tuition money. Go start your business. Um, so that's kind of like, that's her history at Stanford, right? She was, she was there for, you know, looking at it this way, maybe a year, year and a half, maybe, um, before she dropped out. Now, as she began her company, the focus moved from the idea she had for the patch, right? That she could wear, uh, to one where you could run various blood tests with just a few drops of blood from a finger prick versus having vials of blood drawn from your arm. Uh, apparently, Elizabeth is really uh, scared of needles. She doesn't like them. I, mean, I don't blame her. I don't like, you know, I'm not particularly fond of, you know, getting poked and having blood, you know, vials of blood drawn. Um, I get it. Uh, but that was kind of why she, she wanted to go to this, like, a few drops from the finger prick versus having, like, you know, your, your blood drawn like, from your arm. In the HBO documentary, they mentioned that her idea was that what if everyone could have this technology in their home, right? That is this blood testing machine that does the work with just a small amount of blood. Then a person would be able to see uh, see the changes in their blood more quickly, right? So uh, instead of seeing your blood work in the form of like a static picture uh, every six months or once a year, it would be more like a movie, and you would be able to really catch and treat any diseases faster. And as someone who goes to get their blood work done every six months to check my thyroid, and even more often if we're needing to adjust my medication for my thyroid, I can appreciate the idea of being able to see these changes quickly over time and being able to catch things um, over time. So I, I think the initial idea, like, Yes, uh, agreed. That sounds amazing. If I could do that, you know, once a week and, and be able to monitor that kind of stuff, that's really cool. And so her first idea of the patch, the first idea was the patch, and then it was this in-home lab, and that in-home lab was called the Edison. This was in like 2003, 2004. So that's almost 20 years ago at this point. And today we do have patches that people can wear uh, to monitor things. Uh, if you think about the Freestyle Libre, which is a continuous glucose monitor, which uh, CGM, right? Diabetes runs on both sides of my family. So I know all too well the toll that it can take on a diabetic's fingers to take their blood multiple times a day, to test their blood, to get their blood sugar, right? These new monitors go on the back of their arm. They link to a smartphone app and give them monitoring 24 seven. I mean, science is really amazing. I mean, we have come a long, long way. Uh, there's also a patch that I see on Instagram um, and probably Facebook and I've, a couple of influencers have shown it, but uh, it's called NutraSense. This is also a CGM, but it's not targeted toward like people with diabetes um, or diabetics. Uh, the website um, for NutraSense says your body's blood, all these words, your body's blood glucose levels are a vital sign worth measure, measuring and understanding. By using real-time feedback on your body's performance, you can find out how to achieve your health potential. 
pairing a GCM with NutriSense over the course of a year allows you to receive real-time feedback on how your body reacts to your diet, exercise, stress, and more. Now, these aren't the same ideas as Elizabeth's original patch idea, but I just wanted to bring these into perspective as you can see how science has evolved over the last 20 years. And apparently Milo also wants to talk about Elizabeth Holmes today. Hi, Milo. Hi, we'll take a short kitty cat break. What, baby? <laughs> He's, now he doesn't want to talk anymore. Hi, dear. Yes, yes, I see you. Mommy's got mommy's to continue, okay? Thank you. Um, <laughs> so Elizabeth was a huge fan of Steve Jobs. And you can see this in multiple ways. I, I can't pinpoint the time frame, but she ended up taking the idea of a standard wardrobe right? So you don't have to make more than, you know, you don't have to make this one additional decision every day, right? Picking out what to wear. This is something that, you know, Steve Jobs talked about. Um, a couple of other, you know, big entrepreneurs talk about this too. So Elizabeth moved to an all black wardrobe. Every picture, suits, elegant dresses, always black. Um, in the book, Bad Blood, uh, John Carreyrou relates the story relates the story too of when Walter Isaacson uh the book um his biography of Steve Jobs was released and her employees said they could tell what chapter of the book she was on based on her management style because she was trying to emulate Jobs and <laughs> I I get it right I mean that book is fascinating uh, Steve Jobs life was fascinating uh, just all that he did. So I understand why she was drawn to or fascinated by him, right? He was also a college dropout um, and look at what he created, right? Something to aspire to. But then I also think about the time um, that <laughs> I think about one of the times that I saw this influence was also in her TED talk. Um, hold on just a moment. This, this child. Hi, kitty cat. What, baby? I know you really want attention. Mommy can't give it to you right now. Okay. <laughs> this child. I love this child. Okay. We're going to have treat gate here. People are going to be like, you're ignoring your kitty cat. I'm not. He has food. I promise. He has food. He has water. He just wants, now he wants love. Uh, <laughs> okay. Sorry. Back to this, right? So um, in her TED talk, she's wearing all black. She's giving this compelling story about the origins of Theranos and the future that they were creating. She then, she, she puts her hand in her pocket and she pulls out the nano, the nanotainer, um, which is what they collect the blood in. And she pulls it out of her pocket like Jobs did with the iPod. And I'm telling you, like, the resemblance was crazy. If you didn't know how, like, not obsessed, but like how much she like really wanted to look up to Steve, like really want to be Jobs. Like you could easily tell that that she was, you know, uh, uh, trying to trying to be like him in that moment. Um, she also recruited multiple people to work for Theranos that had worked for Apple, and she even hired the same marketing company to design the campaign uh, when they were launching in Walgreens. So if you look at the campaign material, like 
the iconic pictures of her that are like right up of her face you see the lights in her in her eyes you know they're very you know it's just very white background she's just really popped her really focused on her that's done by the same person that had that did uh, some of the um, ads for Apple that's what she wanted she wanted him to do these ads because they had done them for Apple so very much she was very very invested in trying to be like Steve Jobs um, so good good bad whatever however you feel about it that's you, you can take your opinion about that but she that's that's how invested she was so now remember Elizabeth started this company at 19 years old she's trying to raise funds to do the research and I can imagine what it must have been like to go into these rooms of older white men uh, to pitch this idea that is kind of like, what? You want to do what? You want to put a box in everybody's home uh, that to test their blood? You want to run, like, really? Like, this kind of, you have to convince them of this. And regardless of how intelligent you are, when you're 19 or 20, you can still sound like a 19 or 20 year old. And at some point early in this venture, Elizabeth started talking in more of a baritone voice on purpose. So the, do the Dropout docuseries on Hulu has a short scene of her trying out this new lower voice. Um, and if you watch any of her talks, you immediately notice this like lower tone of her voice. Uh, but but it was part of her show, right? It was part of the making of Elizabeth Holmes, of this, you know, going from this, I'm just a, a 19, 20 year old, um, you know, trying to start this company to I'm the CEO and I want to be Steve, you know, I want to be Steve Jobs. I want to command this attention. Um, you know, how, how do I do that? And I want to pause here for a moment because it's things like this that frustrate me. As a woman, why should we have to want to change the octave of our voice to be taken more seriously? Why should we feel the need to hide our emotions, um, to express um, ourselves? Um, in I watched a lot of different documentaries, 2020s, Dateline. I watched a lot of stuff about this. So in one of these various things that I watched, bye Milo. Um, there was a an example of a text exchange between her and Sonny where I guess she was maybe giving a speech and she started to get maybe a little passionate about what she was doing and she had started to like you know her octave started to go back up to normal she was saying words like awesome and and not being as professional so why why do we feel like we need to hide our emotions? I express my emotions. You can typically read them all over my face. But, <laughs> you know, I, I will also cry. I cry. Crying is usually my go-to emotion. I cry when I'm proud of my team, when I'm proud of myself, uh, when I'm embarrassed, when I'm mad, when I read or I see something that touches my heart, tears will come. And many times, if you've been a listener to this podcast <laughs> over the past year, you, you know this. You know that I will get choked up for a moment when I get passionate about a subject. 
And with age, I've gotten more comfortable with who I am in this manner, and I'm not as embarrassed to show this emotion. But it's taken years, because I was taught that it was not acceptable in a corporate setting to show my emotions. I mean, can we agree that that we need to make it more acceptable for all individuals, not just women, to feel comfortable expressing their emotions and being who they are without fearing judgment or fearing that they won't be taken completely seriously. Uh, There's, I mean, there's a, there's a line, right? There is obviously, you know, culture and different things that, that go into play here, but just being able to express our emotions, being able to maybe get excited when you're presenting something uh, to someone, like if you're pitching what you're doing. So like, why? Why can't you get excited? Why can't you sometimes kind of lose your words because you're so passionate about what you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to convey? So I want to talk about the culture that Elizabeth brought in at, at Theranos. Sorry, I do have to take a sip of water. I'm talking really fast. (laughs) So let's talk about the culture that Elizabeth brought in. Now, this culture partly also comes from Sonny. Uh, So I want to acknowledge that he played a big part in this as well. They were a team. Um, So she and Sonny were dating uh, behind the backs of the board, uh, the employees. Like they, they hid this. They lived together. I mean, I think some people kind of figured it out, but over time, but they, they did not make this publicly known that they were together. Um, but throughout the research that I did, um, you, you hear, you know, you hear the stories of how Sonny and Elizabeth watched everything more, more Sonny usually in this case, but email employees would send emails to each other. They would be corresponding on something about work and they would get a reply back from Sonny. Sonny was not copied on this email, but he responded. How? He was tracking. Uh, The employees said they would have a conversation and it would be quoted later in an email uh, from someone who wasn't there, like Sonny (laughs) or Elizabeth, right? Their comings and goings were tracked. They were expected to be at work all the time. They would cater in dinner late in the evening, like 7, 7, 38 o'clock, to ensure that people would stay that late. There was definitely no work-life harmony to be found at Theranos. But within the company, they also started to like section off the departments. The engineers didn't talk to the chemists who were running the test. Then there were two labs. One was called Jurassic Park. The other was called Normandy. They were cut off from each other. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And this was by design. Because the product didn't work. (laughs) This siloing of departments also ended up siloing people inside of departments too. People started to not trust their coworkers. Everyone, when you came to work there, had to sign multiple NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. And I get it. It's, it was a stealth medical startup tech company and you have to keep your trade secrets. 
you know, you're, you're building this new product, you want to keep that out of the public. So that I understand. I mean, I worked for Apple. And, and trust me, if you didn't need to know something, you didn't get looped in. People would always ask me when I worked at Apple, when's the next iPhone coming out? Or, or what's the... I would never know. I wasn't in that department. I wasn't in a need-to-know area. I didn't need to know, so I found out when everybody else did. That's that's how it works in, in places like that. But Theranos really took this to like a whole new level where like departments that needed to talk to each other couldn't even talk to each other. The culture was extremely toxic. The culture was also set up to remove anyone that wasn't a yes person. Um, a, a yes man, so to speak. It's usually the term people use, but a yes person. When Elizabeth said the Edison machine needed to be a specific size, a seasoned engineer told her that it wasn't possible. Like the thermodynamics of the components wouldn't allow it to work properly if it was that size. And she was like, no, it must be this size. So what happened, instead of listening to a solution or coming up with a solution, that Elizabeth and Sonny just went to another engineer that was less experienced. And obviously having the CEO and the COO or CCO, whatever Sonny's title was, having them like give you pressure about like, can we do this? We need to do this. They're going to say yes. Or if one of the chemists raises questions about the validity of test, these individuals were cut out of conversations or just plain told they need to leave. This makes a huge impact on the morale of the teams. Then when the Wall Street Journal article um, was published in 2015, um, even actually before it was published, as they were preparing to publish, because they do their due diligence and they get their sources, they get their information, and they also give the company an opportunity to, you know, rebut anything. Um, when they did that, um, Sonny and Elizabeth, they, they had hired David Boyce, who is a very big name lawyer, very intimidating, um, you know, ha has done a lot of lawsuits. And so they had hired his company. To, to represent them. And they were having people followed. Um, they were intimidating sources that John Carreyrou had, you know, spoken with and, and gotten them to change their story. They had threatened people with lawsuits. I, I mean, just in just unimaginable, like how that, like really that culture, like how that really impacts people. Like that's crazy. So I'm going to give a warning, right? This next, again, this next section is going to cover the other sensitive topic that I was, that I mentioned at the start. So if you want to skip ahead a couple of minutes, this section is a little bit longer. I would recommend that you do that now. I'll take a sip of water, give you a couple seconds to do that, and then I'll jump back in. Mm, this red lipstick is very red, if you're not watching. <laughs> It is so red. <laughs> so out of my comfort zone. <laughs> okay. So there's one individual that was a big part of Theranos at the beginning. Um, and his name was Ian Gibbons. He was the chief scientist at Theranos and started with the company in 20... Uh, gosh, I'm so used to saying like 2020, 2021. Like 2005. 
<laughs> he started as chief scientist of Theranos in 2005. He was the first, like, experienced scientist Elizabeth hired. And over time, he realized that Elizabeth was lying to everyone about the technology, saying that it worked, but it actually didn't work. He voiced these concerns and was fired. He was fired in 2010. But due to kind of an uprising of colleagues, right, demanding that he be hired back, he was rehired. But they drastically lessened his responsibilities. He was not even allowed into the lab that he once ran. Right? Because remember, they, they siloed everybody. If your key card, if you weren't supposed to be in that room, your key card would not get you there. It was a no. Uh-uh. You can't go. Over the next few years, right? So he was hired back um, in, 20, in 2010, right after he was fired. And over the next few years, he went into a depression, a really deep depression. Um, in 2011, uh, he was put in the middle of a patent theft case between Theranos and Richard Fuse. Elizabeth had put her name on several patents, along with Gibbons, saying that she had contributed to that invention, which was not true. And Richard Fuse was pretty sure that was that was true right that, that Elizabeth didn't you know di- she didn't do anything on these patents because the patents were similar to some others that Gibbons already held uh, from a pre- from a previous company so Richard was like no 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 these are given Elizabeth is not being truthful here she did not work on these patents so they wanted they were calling Gibbons to come do a deposition And he knew if he testified truthfully that Elizabeth didn't have anything to do with the inventions, that it would nullify the patents. All of the work they had done, just pretty much down the drain. But if he said that she did help, then he would be lying under oath. And the date of the deposition kept getting pushed and pushed because they were trying to get it, they were trying to get it to where Ian did not have to to do it. They were, they were trying to get, get him out of it. Um, the lawyers. And so it kept getting moved farther and farther out, which was causing more stress for Gibbons. And in the book, Carrie Rue says that Gibbons wife had seen him slipping into this depression, but hadn't pressed the issue because she was also dealing with some personal things as well. Um, but she did realize how severe his depression was and had, and had, talked to him and he was going to go and get some assistance from the doctor. He was going to go to the doctor. He was going to address this. Well, on May 15th of 2013, he found out that the deposition was set for two days later, May 17th. And on the evening of May 16th, Ian overdosed on medication and alcohol. His wife found him the next morning. He was rushed to the hospital. He ended up dying on May 23rd of liver failure. He's a chemist. He knew he knew what he needed to take and to drink to, to make this happen. So, so all of this stress, right? All of this stuff led him to take his own life. Theranos didn't even send an, an email out to the employees. When a colleague finally found out what happened, he sent an email out to the individuals who had worked closely with Ian over the years. Ian's wife had reached out to Theranos to let them know what happened to Ian. 
but all she got was an email from the lawyers stating that she needed to return Ian's work computer and any, any other like, confidential papers that he may have brought home immediately. That was it. The way that Elizabeth had set up the culture that made someone so anxious and depressed that they would take their own life is sickening to me. He was a man trying to do the right thing. He was a committed biochemist that wanted the product to work, but when he questioned and he brought up concerns, he was shut out. I want to take a pause for those that may have skipped ahead so they can hopefully come back in now. Okay, if you skipped ahead, welcome back. When Elizabeth started Theranos, I think her intentions were pure. She really did want to help people. She believed in the idea in all the ways that I've seen the story play out. I noticed that the only woman she ever went to was Dr. Gardner. And after Dr. Gardner kind of gave her, you know, this like, hey, this is what your idea right now. Like, this is not possible, right? She was trying to guide her and help her understand, right? After that, she gravitated towards men for support. Her board was all men. Most of them had a connection to the military or politics. And after the company started bringing in big investors, but the product wasn't working, it seems like instead of leaning on people who knew how to maybe make the product work, right? Like change the size of the box. She just kept saying it worked. She kept finding people who just said yes and dismissed any negative outcomes. When did that shift happen? When did she go from believing in helping people to lying about the product? Like, where was that line? But I also think about the people that she brought in for the board and for partnerships. How did she convince them to just believe her? Here's this product. Nope, you can't see it. Trade secrets. <laughs> We're not going to show you. Can't. Nope, can't come to the lab. Can't give you any information on how this works, but uh, you want to invest? Yay! <laughs> like, I I understand that that when you are starting a company and and you you've got to like give projections about how things are, are going to go right when you're trying to get investors, you you have to kind of give uh, some projections on how you think the company is going to uh, make money. Right, how you're going to get to the end result where your investor is going to make money. I, I get that. But <laughs> I think about if you're going to join the board of a company, if you're going to make a million, a multi-million dollar partnership with this company, you're going to invest in this company. Why was there no due diligence done? I know that Walgreens sent someone to inspect the labs, like someone who's trained to do that, who, who runs labs, who knows labs, who needs to make sure that everything is, is proper. But Elizabeth and Sonny never let him in the lab. So when I think about this in simple terms, right, if I'm going to go buy a car, I'm going to test drive the car. I'm going to look under the hood or have a mechanic look under the hood. I'm going to run a Carfax report, etc. I'm not just going to say, Sure, I'll take it because the salesperson said it's a great investment. No. You, so, 
if you're going to invest multi-million dollars, you know, multi-millions into a company, why are you not doing your due diligence? If they won't let you in a lab, I, I get Walgreens was in a very precarious position then. They really needed something to kind of like help turn them around. And they thought, they were like, this is it. Like they didn't want, they had FOMO. Safeway was the same way. Safeway also invested. Um, and neither of those two ventures worked out because it was all a lie. But they were both so scared. They both had FOMO, fear of missing out, that they did not do their due diligence. And there is a lot of evidence that Elizabeth knew what was going on. She was not oblivious to the fact that this product didn't work. She was lying about what what tests were being, what uh, devices or machines the, the tests that they were getting were being run on. They were being run on commercial machines that, that they altered versus her devices that they had developed, the Edison and the Minilab. In her TED Talk that I mentioned earlier, this was like 10 or 11 years into this experiment. And she knew, she knew that these things weren't working. She knew it. But she stood there on stage and she told everyone that it worked. And she knew it didn't. And I think it was Dr. Gardner that said in an interview that Elizabeth had told her that when that she would just fake it till she makes it. And there are times when that advice is okay. Like when you're nervous about giving a speech, right? And you tell yourself, nope, I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. You fake it till you, you, fake it till you get out there and you start going and you feel good, right? Or asking for a raise, right? Getting that confidence up. Uh, to, to go in and maybe have that kind of uncomfortable conversation. But when it comes to people's health, you don't fake it. You, you should never fake it. Uh, that, that's not a time to fake it when, you're, when you have people's lives in jeopardy. Um, there was another, again, I've watched so many, I can't even, I'll, they're all linked in the notes below, everything I watched and read. Um, but one of them talked about how, like, did Sonny and Elizabeth think that... You know, like a like a software startup, you can roll out a, a soft launch of a software, and you can and it may have bugs in it, and you just go, oh, let's fix those, and you can fix those as you go. Healthcare is not the same way. <laughs> That's you can't do that with people's health. You don't just like no. <laughs> you, there are testing, there are regulations, like those things are there for a reason. You, you can't just fake that stuff. Okay, this brings us back to the question of the episode. Um, when I think about how she conducted herself as a CEO and how she lied to so many people and investors, I can't help to think about how this can affect the future for other female entrepreneurs and CEOs. For those young women who have a brilliant idea that will change the world, are they going to be scared to try because they don't want to be seen like her? Are they going to be scared to try um, or are they going to, sorry, are they going to try, but are investors going to look at that young woman and think, oh no, is this another Elizabeth Holmes? I don't want to be hoodwinked again versus thinking this idea is great and it can work and, and it can change the world. I hope not. I hope that young women can see this story and realize what not to do. Realize that they can have the greatest idea, but if you don't trust the people that you put around you and, and listen to them, that it can lead you down this slippery slope. 
Elizabeth had extremely smart people around her. She had engineers telling her, thermodynamics of this don't work. You have to make it bigger. You can't, but she wouldn't listen. She had biochemists telling her, this isn't working. These tests are failing. We're not able to calibrate these machines. Wouldn't listen. It takes you down a very slippery slope. If you hire the, the, the right people to come around you and help you build an idea, you do have to trust those people. You have to trust and listen to them. I also hope that this story has taught investors and potential board members that you need to ask questions and do your due diligence. You aren't going to be of service to a company unless you do that. Because if you, if you don't, then you're just part of the problem. You're ignoring the facts and believing the fable. So if somebody comes to you and asks you to be a board member, they ask you to invest in a company, ask questions. Because if you're not asking the questions, if you're just going on that false belief or running off FOMO, then you're contributing to the problem. You're ignoring the facts and believing the fable. After watching that HBO documentary again, I had a couple questions that came to my mind. And the first one was, does the fact that I am the same age as Elizabeth make me feel differently than people that maybe are older or younger than, than me and, and her? And I'll be honest, I think it does. Uh, I think being the same age as Elizabeth helps me to understand her mindset at, at 19. She was so excited to create this company. She was on fire. She had this passion. It helps me understand that as the company grew and she had older men like Sunny and her board that she was working with, she may have felt like she needed to change to keep them around. She couldn't let them know that she didn't know what to do or didn't know how to dial it back after it had gotten so far because then she would be looked at as a woman who couldn't do the job. And maybe that's not how she felt, but I know that I've been in a similar place in my twenties and early thirties. I said and did things that, that just so I didn't disrupt the balance, right? I, I said, yes, I'll do that. Or yeah, we can make that happen. And then I'll figure it out later because I didn't want to disrupt the balance. I was in higher level positions working with all male leadership. Imposter syndrome was at its peak for me then. And maybe that's part of what happened for Elizabeth. The other question that I had was, could this have been a successful business? Had she taken a different approach? And I think so. I think in the early days when it was evident that the Edison machine was, was constantly failing test, right? When it was going, when they were trying to build it, it kept failing and failing and failing. If she had listened to the engineers and scientists, they could have made changes to that device that allowed it to work. And maybe they would have been able to bring a product to market that worked, which could have funded more research, could have funded more research to build what she ultimately wanted to advance the science and the engineering. Because science and engineering changed so fast that the product she wanted, a blood testing lab in every home, could actually, it could one day be a reality. Elizabeth wanted to make change happen, but she was unwilling to change to make it happen. 
I hope you enjoyed this Deep Thoughts episode. <laughs> I, I had originally planned to also cover WeWork here, but uh, there's we went over a lot today. Um, and I decided I would, I would just focus on Elizabeth and Theranos. But if you would like for me to dive into WeWork in a similar fashion, let me know. Uh, write me a comment on Facebook or Instagram or send me a message on, on either of those platforms. Um, and let me know if you want me to kind of dig into WeWork a little bit. Um, I hope you like this episode. And if so, please share it. Please like it. Please subscribe to the podcast and YouTube channel. Would love to have you here every week uh, when I release the podcast. I want to say thanks again to everyone who listens. You um, helped me earn some coffee money through my Anchor ad. (laughs) And we held a live coffee chat on Memorial Day. If you did not catch that live coffee chat, you can find it over on Instagram. It may be here on YouTube, but at the time that I'm recording this, it's before it actually happens. So I don't know if it's going to be on YouTube yet or not. Because I'm going to be out of town. So probably not. (laughs) but go look for the live coffee chat. It'll be up on Instagram for sure. And it'll eventually be up on YouTube. All right. I'm going to close this out today. Like I always do, because I want you to know that you are loved and you are worthy. And there are great things ahead for you in this life. If you trust and believe in the Lord. Talk to you next week. Bye everybody.